Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens, UFOs, and just about anything that's on the fringe. Conventional thinking is not allowed here. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Lori Olford. Today, we're going to talk about human biogenesis and good old Darwinian evolution. But we also want to explore how extraterrestrial involvement may have played a very big part in it. Hi, Lori. Hey, Joe. So, Lori, you certainly remember as well as I do from back in our evangelical days uh, that we had to deal with conflicting worldviews about our origins, creation versus evolution. They both put forward models that attempt to explain how everything got here and also the amount of time that it took for everything to get here. Now, of course, as Christians, we had to accept not only the belief in creation, but specifically the belief in the creation narrative as given in the Bible, with the God who came as Jesus in human form as being the same one who spoke everything into existence. Uh, this raised some issues for us. Yeah, like trying to accept that the earth is only 6,000 years old, despite reading that practically every rock and fossil studied was dated to being millions and billions of years old. Mm -hmm. So in our last episode, we briefly mentioned that humans, homo sapiens, are not the rightful indigenous beings of planet Earth. We are special creatures. And if it appears that we simply do not belong to this world with the rest of the animal species here, well, it's because we don't. So on today's show, we're going to discuss how the elusive missing link may likely be extraterrestrial DNA. The Bible has actually already provided us with part of the answer by proclaiming, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. You notice the plurality? Right. And the last time we commented that uh, truth sometimes starts out as blasphemy. And to suggest that God is saying us and our means an alien race uh, does not at all line up with the major world religions. Uh, most theologians would merely postulate that this is God making a self-illusion to the Trinity, not something polytheistic, and that our DNA is really a glorious detail of intelligent design. So just remind everyone that DNA means deoxyribonucleic acid. It is the building block of chromosomes. In human cells, there are 46 chromosomes with about 3 billion pairs of the four bases, adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine that make up the nucleotides of DNA and RNA, which are basically re responsible for the polypeptides, the amino acid sequences that comprise the protein molecules of any given organism. So cats have cat DNA, uh, humans have human DNA, and aliens, of course, would have alien DNA. Yeah, uh, first of all, you know, the Trinity is a rather problematic notion. You really don't have any explicit mention of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as being combined all into the same thing. The mention of them is given in separate allusions in different parts of the Bible. It's mainly from the New Testament. The Old Testament does not refer to it at all. Christianity needed a way to answer uh, for uh, its uh, polytheistic nuances about the Lord in order for it to have a successful monotheistic theme. Yeah, the, the official dogma of a triune God came about around 381 AD after the councils of Alexandria and Constantinople. 
we tend to forget that this was a hotly disputed and divisive controversy within the early church. Uh, sometimes God is singular, as in Yahweh or El. Uh, sometimes he is plural, as Elohim. And while annotations are found about Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the Trinity isn't given as a literal substance, except in a few places, most notably in Matthew 28, 18, concerning baptism. And even then, it's known more as the Godhead. So yes, this was a rift for them in a, at that time. And it doesn't seem like the Jewish scribes who wrote Genesis in the 5th century B.C., but if any reason to be thinking of this when using the plural form of God, they were probably just simply getting that from their source traditions. That's right. And second, let's not forget that within a particular species, 98% of the DNA is the same for each organism. So to qualify the meaning of having likeness to a creator, it means to be sharing in that same genome. You have God, whether Trinity or not, uh, declaring man has the opus of his creation. So we are said to be made in his image and likeness. And while the exegesis of this has been subject to debate, it can't be overlooked that this is said in Genesis 1.26, at the time when God is creating the bottom body of Adam, and saying nothing abstract, like meaning the image and likeness with a soul. So why would we not think that saying image and likeness doesn't mean physical image. Otherwise, wouldn't it clarify if it meant something different? Yeah, so how did we come to be? Uh, evolution does provide us with a good model for the diversity of life on this planet, and there is substantial and reliable evidence to support it as a scientific theory. Uh, so natural selection is a concept put forward by Charles Darwin, as we've all learned, uh, and that was about 200 years ago. And it's to explain the characteristic variations with all the species and that they give rise to mutations that take place over long periods of time. Uh, more importantly, it is the ability of a species to adapt to the environments with these traits, um, also called characteristics, in a way that determines whether or not they survive to have offspring to also carry on those traits. So the problem is human beings have evolved and benefited from natural selection uh, infinitely more than any other species on planet Earth. Uh, we not only can survive virtually any type of environment here, but we have been able to modify it, change it, and control its elements to suit not only our survival, but also our comfort and our convenience. And we have done this through agriculture, urbanization, government, law, religion, language, and social organization. So our brains have given us the tremendous capacity to master our world by building all of these amazing tools, machines, and structures that we have for a myriad of purposes and uses. No others in the animal kingdom have come even remotely close to this. Not only do we possess intellect and reasoning, but also conscience and intuition. And what is, you know, even more remarkable is that this advancement only seemed to get kicked into gear about 10,000 to 12,000 years ago, maybe even later. Before that, our species had changed a little in over 250,000 years. So something seems to have intervened somehow, and that's still very much unknown, but it gave us the capability to adapt to environments such that we not only thrive in them, but master them. So when we read in the Bible 
let us make man in our image, is the our referring to the members of an alien race that is responsible for this? Straight to the point, yes. And well put, by the way. Um, there were other hominids of which their humanoid species like uh, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, and Homo neanderthalianus. Uh, but we, Homo sapiens, out-survived them all by a long shot. The way we did this, outperforming all the other species on the evolutionary timeline, was an incredible leap in making human beings intelligent, sentient, and conscious creatures. So this raises the question, did some outside force get directly involved with us and create us into becoming what we are now? I would say yes. It seems very likely and probable. So so then, what would be considered as God's DNA? So, Lori, uh, we probably have some of our listeners raising their eyebrows right now. The uh, suggestion that the all-powerful and all-present God is comprised of organic material. Uh, God is not only supposed to be spirit, but also supposed to be completely transcended in the universe. Uh, all the religions of the world have God creating us, but at the same time, not as being a physical entity in the way that we are. He is the Lord. So how does any of this pertain to that common theological view? How does God have DNA? Again, Joe, let's look at what the scriptures give us. Nothing else. It's just like Christians always say, read the Bible. Mm -hmm. Well, well, we are reading it, and we are consistently finding this in all the translations of the Genesis account, as well as in the Hebrew text. Uh, we are given these transliterated words about God creating us in his slash their image and after his slash their likeness. Otherwise, why aren't we created as spirit? Now, of course, it can be said that we do have spirits as well. Many believe we do, but we definitely have body. Therefore, if we are of organic flesh and blood, then why wouldn't we think that he slash they from whose image we are made, isn't the exact same. It even has in Genesis 2-7 that God breathed into Adam's nostrils to give him the breath of life. There's a close association in meaning between the word spirit and breath. But again, we have what seems to be one creature blowing air to the nose of another creature. It can't be put more plain and simple. Yeah, the exegesis of this is to the point. And to interpret image and likeness any other way would require us to uh, alter our understanding of the lexicon. Uh, even if it's not an accurate transliteration, there at least would have to be some consistency in the language usage to refer to a similarity. If God is nothing but spirit and not body, then there is no similarity with us at all as he speaks about making us and the vocabulary of the Bible is then wrong. True. Now, evolutionists will say, nope, not buying it. Uh, we descended from the primates through natural selection and divine intervention didn't occur at all. Well, I think that statement falls short of the truth just as much as creation is claiming, nope, we are not descended from primates. In the very least, we are singularly created by a divine hand. So to the creation this, I would ask if we really are uniquely made in God's image, then why do we have 
the DNA of chimpanzees. This is a biological fact. A well-proven fact. However, the Bible has us being formed from dust mixed with clay. So consider that we almost have a similar anatomy to the apes with our two arms, or two legs, or eight fingers, two thumbs, our muscle structure, and our ears are nearly identical. Another fact about our sheer DNA with primates, for example, we see today is found in the simian crease or simian lines, well, best known today as the single palmer crease in human hands. It was first named simian after the monkeys who actually have those simian lines. The question is, are apes and chimpanzees also created in God's image? Now, let's talk about this God DNA for a minute. God DNA must be alien DNA and therefore an organic genome of an alien. We must take into consideration what the Sumerians said of the Adamu being created in the Edan and what the Bible says about Adam in Eden. If we are created in the image of the Elohim, male and female, then they're flesh and blood. The church has to come to grips and accept that we were created in the images of God slash gods, who by definition are extraterrestrials because he slash they are from beyond earth. Mm -hmm. So there is a verse, there, there is verse after verse describing Yahweh eating, drinking, resting, and walking, which means that he must have been a flesh and blood being. Proponents of creationism will still argue against this because of the hold our religious indoctrination has on our minds. You know as well as I do the power of this. There is a fear of the unknown and the unseen. And we, and we are taught that through faith, um, we can overcome this fear and secure our places in the afterlife. So we stick to this belief, even when it is contradicted by tangible and well-grounded evidence. But to the evolutionists, I would ask that if we are a direct descendant from the primates, then why do we have 46 chromosomes while the other primates have 48? What happened to the extra pair of chromosomes in our cells? Now, this is a significant amount of DNA to lose. So what occurred in our genome is that about 200,000 or so years ago, by genetic engineering, our creators had to locate spots in the DNA sequence or genes to fuse together two chromosomes after matching them to make uh, them into one. This would have taken the natural process of evolution millions of years. Now, the question is, why would evolution do this only in our species? We still don't know. Nope. So it seems like something miraculously happened to our genome, and it can be traced back to mitochondrial DNA. This is different from nuclear DNA, where, which comes from both parents. Now, mitochondrial DNA is only passed on from the mother to the offspring, in, the article, in an article by new scientists titled Found, the closest link to Eve, our universal ancestor, the author, Michael Slezak, explains that the mitochondrial Eve lived as far back as 200,000 years ago in southern Africa, and that all humans can trace their mtDNA back to her. This is interesting because geneticists have taken mtDNA, mitochondrial DNA, from women around the world and traced it to no later than 250,000 years. So this is about the time that the Sumerians claimed we were created by the Anunnaki 
And of course, it also seems to be paraphrased in Genesis 2. And the scripture verses are 20 to 22, with Eve being made from one of Adam's ribs. Hmm. Uh, now, the, uh, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew and the Akkadian terminology of rib is more in meaning with side and also life. So this could be illustrating how a chromosome, which oddly look, looks a little like ribs uh, when viewed under a microscope, was removed from the side of the cell where the mitochondrial would be in relation to the nucleus. Okay, uh, let's go back to the apes. Why do they have more physical strength than us? Why are their bones larger and thicker than ours? Why did we develop a larynx and learn language communication? Why do their heads rest on their shoulders while ours are elevated on a long neck? Why are they covered with hair while we are almost completely hairless? Why are we able to use technology to manufacture incredible things? Why, why, why? I could go on and on. Mm -hmm. What evolutionists need to realize is a shark will always be a shark. It's not going to one day become a dolphin, nor will it become a crocodile in another two million years from now. I'm sure most of them don't think like this, but the point is natural selection doesn't sufficiently explain our sudden jump. Homo sapiens will always be us unless something or someone intervenes and gives us what you might call an upgrade. Well, evolutionism puts everything as a transitional species, and as such, all species perpetuate over millions and millions of years through transmutation. So there are always these genetic variations taking place as more and more members of a species are born. These are small sort of micro variations uh, that are sometimes passed on to the offspring. Uh, Charles Darwin and Thomas Henry Huxley proposed that the survival of a species is a result of how beneficial these variations serve them in adapting to habitats and become macro variations. So, for instance, giraffes with long necks do better than giraffes with short necks. They're able to eat more leaves off of the very tall trees. Their offspring will survive better if they inherit this trait. Over time, those with shorter necks will dwindle since the longer neck giraffes will outpace them in the consumption of food, and thus that trait will dominate in the species as there will be more long-necked giraffes to procreate, while there will be fewer short-necked ones that are around to do so. And, and that's sort of an elementary uh, thumbnail sketch of it. And, and to be fair to the creationists, uh, we should give them the benefit of using a sound argument. A sound argument meaning that if the premises is true, then by following the logic of deductive reasoning, the conclusion will also be true. However, that does not guarantee the validity of the argument. That comes from demonstrating that the assumptions used to reach the conclusion are proven to be cogent. Uh, an example being the statement that dogs are made of chocolate, therefore they must melt under high heat. Uh, it is sound because it is true that chocolate will melt under high heat. That has been proven. Yet it is not valid because the premise is that dogs are made of chocolate is not proven true. So to say we are a superiorly developed species, therefore we must have been created by a sentient being who's even more superior, is a sound affirmation, but an invalid one. We are a remarkable species, and if we were made, then it is reasonable to think that such a maker would have to be even more remarkable. However, 
the epistemological premises that such a maker or first cause objectively exists is an assumption that has not been demonstrated. Right. Uh, the whole dogma of creation is that a transcendent and imminent God spoke all these things into existence. It all just sort of falls into the sphere of divine mystery, you know, with a supreme deity being able to make something out of nothing. We can't create ourselves. So God, uh, even though we can't see him, is the only possible thing that can make us. And regardless, their basis on this is of intelligent design. Uh, we are just too incredible, and nature itself is just too incredible to have come about on its own or by accident, and we must have been, therefore, caused to exist. And, and let's be honest, there is something to that. Um, even Francis Crick, one of the discoverers of the DNA double helix structure, said something to this effect in his work of molecules and men, and he was one to, to stop at religion. So... Natural selection falls short of satisfactorily explaining such magnificence. But that's also a little bit of a straw man argument, since evolution is not about trying to put everything here as a result of an accident. Instead, it has these things come about because the laws of physics are governing the processes taking place throughout the cosmos. We see gravity, thermodynamics, electromagnetism, atomic particle forces, quantum mechanics, and Newtonian mechanics. It all follows a mathematical order that is fixed, and we find that even uh, chaos in the universe seems to follow organized patterns. Exactly. And with the ancient alien theory, we sort of have a creationist insertion uh, into that. So we have natural selection and transmutations occurring over the course of millions and billions of years. But we now also have Homo sapiens being modified through deliberate genetic hybridization, so it has to essentially become a created species. It doesn't get into the Big Bang or how life may have come out of a primordial soup or panspermia. Those are different matters altogether. What it does is put forward a possibility of how we became what we are as an advanced human race. So really, you can believe in creationism of God making the whole universe and still accept the possibility that we are the result of some special type of extraterrestrial genetic engineering. Yeah, ancient alien theory doesn't touch at all on the doctrines that St. Thomas Aquinas called the first cause or the unmoved mover or anything to do with natural law. It's not an explanation for the origin of the cosmos and how everything got here. Um, so an extraterrestrial race of beings, whether from Nibiru or anywhere else, would have had to uh, either evolve through natural processes on their own worlds or be created by God. Um, so it, it doesn't actually support evolutionism any more than it supports creationism. Now what the ancient alien proponents argue is that our ancient traditions, the scriptures, the myths, the religious narratives, uh, say that we, the people, began at a time when incredible things were seen, mostly coming from the sky, and that our super development is a result of it. It can fit into the models of creation and slash or um, evolution. Now, the universe is believed to be about 14 and a half billion years old, and the earth is, be is believed to be about four and a half billion years old. That's a very, very long time for evolution to go on. 
the, the rise of mammals is thought to have happened about 65 million years ago, with hominids appearing about 20 million years ago. We find Astrophilithecus africanus uh, becoming extinct in Zambia about uh, 2 million years ago, with Homo erectus and Homo habilis developing about that time, and then they too become extinct. We find Neanderthal man in Germany and Java man in Indonesia dating to about, what is it, 800,000 years ago and becoming extinct about 40,000 years ago. Now, Homo sapiens appear around 300,000 years ago, and nothing really impressive happens for a long while. And the other humanoids go extinct, but Homo sapiens, like Cro-Magnon man in, in France and uh, the Denisovian man in China, who date to a little over 50,000 years ago, continue on but don't change a whole heck of a lot. Uh, they are hunter-gatherers and use stone tools for quite some time, and then, boom, it's at about 10,000 to 8,000 years ago that they then start to become really amazing because after almost 3 million years, the Stone Age comes to an end and humans learn how to make tools from metalworking, a technological breakthrough. On the scale of the long and slow moving chronology of the universe, the 250,000 to 300,000 years that it took our species to become like this is virtually instantaneous. According to the ancient writings, our ancestors not only came into being by the work of something or someone who really already existed uh, on this planet, but who also arrived from the stars up in the sky. And it's around this point that the handiwork of alien genetic engineering begins to take hold. Uh, there's another Babylonian and Akkadian myth called the Atrahasis, which talks about this. And we mentioned in our other episodes that this alien race was mining gold on the continent of Africa and that they were getting tired of the hard work. The Atrahasis has the Anunnaki grumbling to their leaders, Anu, Enlil, and Enki, uh, about this situation. And the solution was to make a worker species, a sort of beast of burden for them. And they said that the beast was already present on Earth as an ape-man, possibly referring to Homo erectus. Now, there are actual um, Mesopotamian and Egyptian artifacts that were found depicting just that, the manipulated hybridization uh, being performed by the gods so as to make what would be called the Adamu, or Adam, or man. We have uh, Sumerian cylinder seals that show scenes of what look like the gods working in a laboratory setting, and others that have what appear to be these monstrous creatures. So you have to wonder, what is going on with this? Even aside from that, you, you have it saying in Genesis 2.5 that there was no man to work the ground, which echoes to the Atrahasis, uh, with the Anunnaki complaining that there is no worker to carry their toil. The monsters on these cylinder seals could very well be the hybrids that went wrong in the experiments. Uh, before perfecting their processes of, of uh, genetic engineering, the extraterrestrials may have made some errors with bad results. It was after trial and error. And we have to ask, did the ancient people have stories about such things with you know, the freakish half-human and half-something else? Uh, the answer, of course, is yes. 
And the mythologies of the wor- of the world are jam packed with the tales of horrible, hideous beasts. Yeah, you, you, you have this. You have the Sphinx. You have the the uh, the Griffin. Uh, you have the uh, what was it called? The the, uh, the Chimera. Yeah, uh, you have the uh, Centaur. All of these are hybrids that are the blending of creatures, and are said to have been birthed through some kind of unnatural power. And these are all similar to what is seen in the Sumerian cylinder seals you mentioned. This brings us back to the paraphrased story of the creation of Eve in Genesis 2. Here it says that no suitable companion was found for Adam from within the animal kingdom. So therefore, a woman was made by using a part of Adam. No matter where you research the differences between our chromosomes and those of other primates, it appears that the word fused is applied. So it is the joining or blending of two or more genes to form into a single one. And now you mentioned two things earlier, primordial soup and panspermia. And what these are are two different principles of abiogenesis, which is how living material like amino acids come from the prolonged chemical reactions of inanimate substances. So the primordial soup pertains to the organic compounds that were present in the oceans three and a half billion years ago. And they, they may have uh, given rise to single-celled organisms when the conditions of the oceans were just right. Panspermia, on the other hand, describes that these organic compounds came to Earth from outer space, possibly as far back as four and a half billion years ago or even, even further back. Uh, something tells me, Lori, that you're more in favor with panspermia. Uh, this goes along well with supporting the very notion of life existing not only on our planet, but also on other planets. Well, I, I think there is no proof of the primordial suit. However, uh, panspermia does offer a good explanation to how life began on our planet, uh, either by meteor bombardment or by a cataclysmic collision by two planets which is what I believe happened about, you know, four to four and a half billion or so years ago and caused the transfer of two forms of sophisticated bacteria known as eukaryotes and prokaryotes. This is what the Sumerians meant when saying, you know, Nibiru passed life onto Tiamat. The Bible also claims it by saying God separated the waters from the expanse. So we actually see the process of evolution unfold in Genesis. The earth was formless and void, then light appeared, then the waters dry, uh, then the waters appeared, and then dry land appeared, then the sun and the moon and the seeds, then the plants and the trees, next the sea creatures and the birds of the air, the crawling animals, and then of course humans. So yes, the process of uh, evolution is summed up, albeit very crudely, in the first chapter of Genesis. Well, I, I think there could have been a soup as well. Um... And the chemistry of the oceans was very different three and a half billion years ago, according to Alexander Oprin's um, book, The Origin of Life, uh, where it says certain organic compound synthesis could have taken place back then under the different conditions that were present um, in the oceans. So now, where were early humans made? The, The Bible says it wasn't Eden that the first two humans were made and put within a beautiful garden of paradise. And we all know that story. We find parallels with this in the Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis, 
which give uh, clues as to where this whole genetic engineering project took place here on the planet. It seems to have been on the continent of Africa, or at least somewhere not too far from it, like the Middle East. And interestingly enough, anthropologists have found evidence to suggest that the ancestor primates of humans did originate in southern Africa. What do you think of the comparison of this kind of scientific finding with what we learn about the Anunnaki in these ancient sources? Well, for this, I'll go back to what I said earlier about our mitochondrial DNA being traced to a mitochondrial Eve in Southern Africa. Uh, it was there that the atom after creation was put to mine the gold. So it could be that it was done in a biogenous laboratory, a garden of Eden, a, a biodome that was possibly somewhere in or near Africa, perhaps Mesopotamia or even on an orbiting spaceship. Who knows? If the latter is correct, then we truly did come from the stars. Now, we were created to be a worker species for the Anunnaki, like it claims in the Altraasis. And we believe we relieve the heavy burden from them. And when those laboring Anunnaki left the Abzu, which is believed to be a name given to mean Southern Africa, they went away for a Shar, uh, which is one year for Nibiru and 3,600 years for us. And when they returned, they descended to Mount Hermon and took interest in human women, which we covered in our last episode, the, the uh, sons of God. Uh, this is how another form of DNA was brought about by the children of heaven having sex with the daughters of men. This union produced a notorious offspring of giants that God slash gods are said to have wanted to eradicate. Yep, and then comes the flood. Um, so this process of genetic engineering where DNA is intentionally altered or manipulated to bring hybrid changes in the genome is a concept that we're all familiar with. We've all heard about it. And without getting technical, it deals with doing things in a controlled environment with uh, pieces of DNA uh, being cut and pasted by enzymes uh, along the nucleotide base pairs. Uh, this is to be used as a nucleic acid that is transferred to different parts of the chromosome, uh, even to those chromosomes of a different organism. Uh, this will cause changes in what is known as genetic expression. The results are the emergence of altered characteristics, um, new characteristics, and, and this has been demonstrated. Now, just to be clear, Lori and I are not presenting these hypotheses in favor of either side. We are taking into consideration the theory of evolution as well as religious creationism. The ancient alien theory actually brings both of them together in a comprehensive way that we think gives viability to the Bible within a scientific framework. So these are our perspectives from our own research and reading. Uh, we look for logical explanations and then present them to you. And we encourage uh, everyone to do the same. Um, you know, ask the questions, uh, look for possible explanations, and then uh, derive your best conclusions from a rational standpoint. And, and even if it means you must challenge uh, what you've been brought up to believe. Um, and with that, we're out of time. I, I tell you what, we packed a lot of information into this show, and I, I'm certain we'll need to come back sometime uh, and address all of this some more. Oh, yeah. Uh, we haven't even gotten into the flood, the fall of Adam and Eve, the expulsion from a garden, God limiting man's age to to 20 years and so mm -hmm. on. 
Um, these all have connections into the ancient alien theory. So Joe and I have received some suggestions for our topics to discuss, and we would like to cover those in the upcoming shows. There's a lot about UFOs and how um, they've always been with us, mostly in the way of misunderstood technology. You're right. We'd like to get a little more into UFOs, uh, the sightings both in present day uh, as well as in ancient times, you know, in particular with the famous vision of Ezekiel at the um, Kibar River, which uh, many readers say is nothing short of a description of an alien spacecraft in the sky. So that should be pretty interesting. Yeah. And how about Antarctica? (laughs) Yeah, How about it? (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's just a ton of strange stuff about that place. Numerous UFO sightings, secret and, you know, Nazi missions during World War II, alien spaceship attacks on the U.S. Navy, not to mention mysterious geography. Um, we have no idea what's underneath all of that ice. Perhaps even the lost continent of Atlantis is there. Who knows? Interesting and strange all at the same time. And that's what makes all of this so much fun to talk about. That's right. And don't forget to check out our books, everybody. Uh, Let Us Descend, Biblical First Contact, and Gnostics Fire on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Google Play. Yep. So until next time, uh, stay safe, stay peaceful, and most of all, stay curious. Take care, folks. Bye, everybody.